0: God spoke these words to the prophet, or through the prophet. I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand and I will accomplish my purpose. I have spoken and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed and I will do it. One of the best apologetic evidences that these 66 books that we call the Bible are the truly inspired Word of God is prophecy. The incredible accuracy of biblical prophecy coming to pass proves that this book is not of human origin. It absolutely must come from one who is outside of time and space and we know that to be the Lord God Almighty maker of heaven and earth of all that is seen and unseen we know that just by example of, of prophecies that have come to pass in the Old Testament the, the prophetic word that was spoken to Israel about the Babylonian captivity that they would go into captivity under Babylon for 70 years and it came to pass The prophecy that Jesus gave to the disciples that said that the temple in Jerusalem would be destroyed came to pass in 70 A.D. And not the least of which are the amazing prophecies about our Lord, the Messiah, who came, most especially regarding his, uh, uh, the whole aspect regarding his crucifixion. All of that clearly detailed in the scriptures, spoken ahead of time and coming to pass in real time. So God speaks prophetically for a number of purposes. In one, it proves that he's God, that he's fully sovereign over all of life, that he alone knows the beginning and the end. He gives us prophecy in order to instruct us in his ways, so that we have an understanding of what it is that he's working out in the lives of men. He gives us advanced pictures of what he's going to to accomplish and we learn from uh, you know, about his ways through looking at that. Prophecy is given to us to prepare us and to cause us to adjust. He gives us the prophetic word so that in light of what we know is coming, that it may prompt us to make changes in our own lives, not the least of which is repentance. And then he also gives us the prophetic word in order to provide us with assurance and hope. Right? He gives us a picture of what is coming so that in the midst of tribulation now, we can know that God has a better future planned that we are a part of. I mean, that's not unlike any parent that, say, at a difficult time in their lives with their kids would paint a picture of the vacation that's coming up during the summer. <laughs> that would excite them about what's happening soon. Or or a, a child losing a pet that they love, right? And then a parent or a sibling painting that picture of, you know what? We're going to go out and get another one, and you're going to love this one even so much more. It's a picture of hope, and and God has given that to us in the prophetic word. And in the scriptures, we know that God speaks prophetically about many subjects. uh, But one of the things that he speaks about that fascinates everyone, whether they're believers or not, is the whole idea of the future, about what's going to happen Regarding the end of the world, everyone has a fascination uh, regarding that and in Christian circles this I this study of the end things is called eschatology Big word. You don't always hear that too often, but essentially what that it's a word that means the study of last things And so a particular focus in that study is the timing of Jesus second coming and the ushering in of what has been called the millennium now millennium in, is, is a word that means a thousand and in the Christian context it refers to the period of time that the Bible says that Jesus will be reigning in his kingdom now in the study of theology and the development of this doctrine of the kingdom of the millennium over time there has developed three views within the church about the millennium and these three views are all considered to be orthodox what that means is that they are all within the confines of legitimate doctrine taught within the confessing church none of these three are heretical some might think they are within the body we have our intramural debate that's called but there are three primary views regarding this this year of a thousand year reign of jesus christ and i'm i'll try to briefly explain each one of those right now the three views the first is called pre-millennial the pre-millennial view is the one that takes the scripture most literally in its working out and what it says it basically uh, Promotes the idea that Jesus will return before the millennium, before this thousand year reign of Christ. He comes before that actually comes into play. He comes at a time of great earthly tribulation. He destroys his enemies. He establishes his kingdom and he physically rules on the earth for 1,000 years. It is the most literal. Understanding of that word millennium within the scriptures. So that's the pre millennial view. The second view is called post millennial. This view is the most optimistic, I'll call it. Whereas the pre millennial is the most literal, this is the most optimistic. And you'll see why. The, the post millennial view says that the gospel's influence is going to spread increasingly throughout the earth in such a way that over time, things are going to get better and better. God's gospel will advance into nation by nation, and one by one, strongholds will be brought down. Things will get better and better over the earth. And at the end of the last thousand years of that period of time, which is the millennium in that context, Jesus will return to receive that kingdom that has been established on the earth. So he comes post-millennium. It is after the 1,000 years. The third view is called amillennial. This, I would say, is the most spiritualized view of what you see in Scripture. In this uh, understanding, amillennial refers to the fact that there is no literal 1,000-year reign. That word amillennial that the word or the letter "a" ah, is basically a negative makes a negative connotation of that word millennium it's kind of like in the word atheist right an atheist says there is no god an agnostic says there is no knowledge or not enough knowledge that's what's being understood here with amillennial it is no millennium what they see what the proponents of the amillennial view see is that the millennium is a metaphor for the church age. The church, or Christ, when he came the first time, he ushered in the kingdom of God at his coming. And we've been in the millennium ever since Christ came. So they make a metaphor out of that thousand years. It's really not a thousand years, but it's the entire church age. And they would hold that at the end of time, Christ will come, destroy his enemies, and usher in the new heavens and the new earth. So those are the three primary views, premillennial, postmillennial post-millennial, and amillennial. Now, given the interest in this subject matter that's ever-present, and given the amount of space that the scripture gives us about end times, um, the elders uh, collectively thought that it would be helpful for us as a fellowship to take one week for each of these views, to give us concise and as basic of an understanding of them, so we understand these views, and whether we land on one or not, at least we have an understanding of them, and it would hopefully give us a launching pad to further our study regarding this doctrine, because clearly God has given us insight regarding the end times for a reason. They're not to be ignored. We are to study this as a doctrine, just as we study any other doctrine within the scriptures. And so that's going to be our purpose uh, uh, over the next three weeks. And um, as it uh, came to pass, uh, I have been assigned to give the view regarding the pre-millennial view of the millennium. Now, before I begin, I just want to make a couple of points for your consideration. First, uh it's important for us to study prophecy. God has given it to us in his word. So this is a good thing that we're doing. But as we study it, we're not to become obsessed by it. Now that's a a real tendency that happens in this world. Especially when it comes to tantalizing things like end times. You know, you even in the secular world, you've got people that that want to find out you know, soothsayers and, and 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 look at tarot cards or read Nostradamus because they want to know what's going to happen in the future. So it captivates everybody, and Christians are not immune to that same type of attraction. Uh, a lot of uh, churches, unfortunately, sometimes overemphasize the end times, and that's all they focus on. And they read the Bible in one hand, as they say, and the newspaper in the other. And try to see the direct fulfillment of things happening in the script or in the newspaper, in the scriptures, and try to do their own prognostications on when Christ is coming, which we've been, of course, warned never to do that. We're never to, because Christ told us, He says, "I do not even." He said when He was on earth, "I don't even not even know the day of my coming. Only the Father knows." So how are we to look into something that God has still kept a mystery? The other thing about this too is that um, with prophecy, we all have to come to an understanding that. Even with the clarity of what God has given us in his word, the things of the end times we still look at through a glass darkly, as the scripture says. There are still many aspects of prophecy that we don't know. He's given us clarity in a lot of areas, but there's a lot that we don't know. And so we have to be okay with that. The the, the fact that a lot of it is still shrouded in mystery. The The other thing that I want to point out is that when you have these views, one thing I do want to it's 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 one of these points that is um uh clear we all understand it but it's good to say it not all three of these views can be right they just can't they they all come from a different viewpoint they all have different assumptions brought into them so they all can't be right it's logically true that they could all be wrong but i think as you're going to see as we go through it um at least as I uh, have looked at it I think one uh, clearly is um, is a a more accurate description of what will come to pass than the other two are but I leave that for you you'll come to your own decision regarding that Uh, the the last thing to remember about all this is that there are three views and in the confessing church there are solid Bible teachers in each one of these camps they have all done their serious homework regarding this matter, men uh, that, are, that are much you know, further educated in this realm than I could even hope to be. And they've each landed in a different place. So that's just something to keep in mind. And, and the reason why I say that is, one, um, is that that should destroy in any of us a smugness or an arrogance about the position that we take. We should all come to the, uh, the, the, the aspects of prophecy with great humility. Because God knows the end from the beginning and he's given us light so we can understand a lot of it But when it comes down to even the intramural debate There should be that aspect of non arrogance and we need to be charitable to one another right? Let's and, and that's the purpose of the next three weeks so that we all have an understanding of what the three different views are And even if we don't agree with two of them and we do land on one To show charity towards the others and have this be a healthy and robust debate because if anything, all of this study should drive us further to our knees and worship before the Lord for what he has revealed to us. Okay, all that said in preliminary. Uh, let's dive in. Let's take a look at the case for the premillennial view of Christ's return, that he will come before the thousand-year reign. And I, uh, I've couched my teaching in a way that I, that I see this position standing on three major foundation stones. The first foundation stone is the plain testimony of Scripture. A pre-millennial view, or I'll shorten it a lot of times, I'll call it pre-mill, it comes from a plain straightforward reading of God's Word. It's to be read like any other written document. It's to be read and understood literally as fitting to the context. When you're reading it, if it's literal, you receive it as literal. If you're reading it and it's figurative, you receive it as figurative. It's just like anything that we do, anytime we read anything else on a day-to-day basis. The rule is, if the plain sense makes good sense, then there is no need for any other sense. Very simple rule in looking at it. Now, God's spoken clearly. What the theologians have said about God's word is that it, it the it has perspicuity that's a big word it's a big college level word that means clarity what god has said he, he's spoken clearly it's easily for easy for anyone to understand you do not need a masters of divinity to understand the bible everyone can understand it yes there are some things that are difficult Pe- paul even or peter even says that he in in the second letter uh, that he wrote he even talks about Paul writing about things that you know blow his mind that he can't get his head around and that's true there are many aspects but you know the main things are truly plain anyone reading God's word doesn't need to have some type of uh, person uh, explaining every detail to them because the things that God wants us to know especially regarding himself and salvation are clear Now that's true regarding creation, it's true true regarding salvation, and it's true regarding the book of Revelation, right? A lot of times we come to the book of Revelation thinking, oh, this is some obscure book, I can never understand it. But a lot of times the same people that have an issue with trying to understand and not taking Revelation literally, they're the ones who are at the same time championing and saying we must stand on the literal interpretation Of Genesis 1 the ones there there, there's a a number of teachers that want to allegorize what Genesis 1 is saying so that way there's not a seven-day creation but it's actually millions upon millions of years and my point is why would we treat Genesis 1 with literal understanding but not do the same thing when we're reading through Revelation so I leave that for your consideration Um, if you read the end time passages literally you come to a you naturally come to a pre-millennial conclusion post mill post millennial and amillennial views I believe require the import of extra biblical ideas and data and I liken it to this this is an analogy that made sense to me I assert that a child is born a natural theist a child knows because of the work that God has done in that little baby's heart, and in that young child's heart, that God is, that he exists. And the child knows. A child needs to be convinced to be an atheist. He has to be convinced. Something has to be imported in from the outside to drive that child to change his mind regarding what he knows to be true. And we kind of even see that, um, almost in a certain sense, uh, amongst my Presbyterian brothers who have used they they use the scripture but they have to create an argument for paedo-baptism now we're all reading the same scripture but they take the same things that we read and they don't take it in the literal sense they have to come at it from what is called a covenant theology mindset in order to come up with the idea of baptizing babies uh, in in order to bring them into the family of god and so that's where the plain reading of Scripture we need to be consistent on in that respect. And, and, and the last thing I'll say about that is that, uh, regarding that whole idea that the plain reading of Scripture leads you to an automatic, natural conclusion of the premal position, is uh, anecdotal. John MacArthur talks about how he went to Russia right after the fall back in the 90s when the walls came down and it was no longer communist run and the churches were finally open to serve to actually minister to the people he went to the far east probably in the neighborhood of siberia and he gave a week-long bible study to pastors that were working in the underground church at that time and he had gone through all the different doctrines and then it finally, he finally got to the to the session where he was talking about end times And when he finished the time of the end times, they came up to him and they said, you you teach exactly what we have believed. Now these are guys that have had no formal educational training. They had no access to any type of theological uh, schools in order to understand God's word. All they had was God's word. That's what they read. And those were the conclusions that they came to, that Jesus will return before the millennium. So, given that premise then, Understanding that we're looking at that, that I make the point about the plain testimony of Scripture leads us to premill. This is what the premill position says is the order of events regarding Christ's return and the millennium. There is the rapture of the church. That leads then into the tribulation, or what will, and then what is called the great tribulation. Then the second coming of Christ. The millennial kingdom follows that the judgment of the ungodly, and then finally the ushering of the new heavens and the earth, new earth for eternity. So we're going to walk through each one of these very briefly. So if you'd like to follow in your your Bible, or you could just listen, turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, starting in verse 16, and we'll look at the biblical view where this idea of a rapture comes from. Rapture is a word that actually means, it's taken from a Latin word, rapturo, which means catching up. That's where you get the word rapture from. It's just a nice, easy thing to coin in our uh, Christian circles. So starting in verse 16 of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, Paul writes, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, With the voice of an archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be always with the Lord. This is called the catching up of the church before the great tribulation. Now, there are many within the professing uh, body of Christ that hold that this actually happens at the end of the tribulation after the end of uh, the tribulation Um, that's an intermural debate against from a timing standpoint but the futuristic view that I'm I'm proposing to you guys the futuristic premillennial view asserts that Christ in this particular event the rapture of the church happens before the tribulation that is, cast upon the world by God as judgment. Now, if you read that passage again that I just read, there's nothing about the context that demands that we take anything that's written in that passage to be figurative. It's plain, and thus we can rest assured that it is an event that will absolutely take place. Whether you agree on the timing or not, whether you whether your understanding of where that happens in a whole scheme of, of God's prophetic end times plan the truth is that will happen that event of God's people being caught up to meet him in the air will occur now just because it's been caricatured because of things like the whole left-behind series or just because uh, some churches have promoted an immature and cowardly Uh, escapist theology as a result, you know, to basically back out of everything and just wait for the Lord Jesus because he's coming to take us from the wrath to come, that does not uh, excuse us from taking this as an actual event just as scripture has told us to and knowing that it will happen. It is a legitimate biblical view. So that is the rapture of the church. Then what happens right after that is what's called the tribulation and the great tribulation. And from this, we can just see a small snippet in Matthew 24, starting in verse 21. This is the, uh, the passage where Jesus is talking just prior to being arrested and his crucifixion. He's in Jerusalem now talking to the disciples. And he's teaching them about future events. And in verse 21, he says to them, For then there will be great tribulation, such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now, no, and never will be. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. To define terms, the tribulation is a seven-year period of judgment that's going to be poured upon the earth by God in the last days. It's actually described in full in Revelation chapter 6 through 18. So if you want to get an idea of what is happening in this period of the Revelation, read Revelation 6 through 18. And it's a judgment that comes to pass specifically as an instrument of judgment that God uses to save his chosen people, Israel. It's the period referred to in the Old Testament as the time of Jacob's trouble. Jacob is another term in the scriptures that it refers to to Israel, the time of Jacob's trouble. That's why the church is seen as being raptured prior to the tribulation. That's why this position holds that the church is, is caught up to be with the Lord before this outpouring of God's wrath comes, pre-trib, it's called. Because this period of time, the tribulation, is the time when the church age ends and God once again deals directly with ethnic Israel. And again, that explains the Jewish nature of Revelation 6 through 18. You hear, when you read Revelation, the first four chapters, or first four to five chapters, there is talk of the church, right? You see the church in there. But then, interestingly enough, 6 through 18 specifically is focused only on the Jew. And there's a reason for that. And I believe it's because this is the period of time that God is dealing with ethnic Israel in their salvation, He's dealt with the church. Now, the tribulation period is when he deals with the Jews. Now, it's true that the initial context of Matthew 24 has to do with Jesus' prophecy about the destruction of the temple and the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. There clearly are aspects of that teaching that he's talking about that. But as with many prophecies, there's a partial near-fulfillment... And then there is also a future comprehensive fulfillment of the same prophecy. We see that multiple times in the scriptures. There is a near and a far fulfillment of prophecy. And this is one instance of that in my estimation. And we can know that to be the case because here in Matthew 24, starting in verses 21-22... What Jesus just said here, what I just read, can in no way be describing the destruction of the temple. The siege on Jerusalem was horrific. According to Josephus, 1.1 million people, mostly Jews, died in that siege by the Romans on Jerusalem in 70 AD. 1.1 million people died in that event. But there's no way that that it was a tribulation... That nothing else in history compares to. Not even the flood. Because notice what he says there. He says such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now. No and never will be. And if those days had not been cut short. No human being would be saved. So he's clearly talking about some type of judgment that is still to come. That is going to be so horrific. If God had not stopped it. The entire world would be wiped out. Clearly going much further even past what the flood did, which destroyed the world and yet still left eight people alive by God's grace. So we can rest assured by the teaching of God's word that a great tribulation truly is coming, and it will be one the likes of the world has never seen. So that's the tribulation and the great tribulation. Then what follows that is the thing that we have all been looking forward to, and it's the second coming of Jesus Christ. And we get this from Acts chapter 1. Turn to Acts chapter 1, please, starting in verse 10. It's on the chalkboard, too. There we go. Stop <laughs> <laughs> <It's not gigantic. laughs> you You knew. You would be there. God told me. <laughs> Acts 1, starting in verse 10. So context. Jesus is, has been with the disciples, and he's preparing to go to ascend into heaven. He's been talking to them, and he actually goes up into heaven. He's actually lifted off off the earth and goes into the sky. And it says in verse 10, And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, so Jesus is ascending into heaven, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way you saw him go into heaven clear you can't you cannot spiritualize what this was just said they're saying as jesus just went up into heaven bodily you will see him return bodily just as he had a physical first coming by being born to mary and laid in a manger in bethlehem so will he come physically in his physical body glorified of course a second time And he will come, this time, to Jerusalem. That is the the blessed hope, I believe, that that Paul is talking about when he writes to Titus in Titus chapter 2. So he will descend from heaven just as he ascended, which Acts chapter 1 here just said. Revelation 19 talks of this same event where it says he will be accompanied by the armies of heaven arrayed in white. So Jesus will be coming with an army of angels and the elect. All the redeemed will be joining Jesus in that return, in judgment to this world. And then 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 tells us that he will come in victory to inflict vengeance and destruction upon his enemies. So this is not the humble, meek and mild Jesus coming into the world. This is Jesus coming in wrath. The scripture describes him as having eyes of fire and a flaming sword that he's coming to deal with his enemies, and he will take vengeance upon them. So that is the second coming of Christ. Then the scriptures tell us about this issue of the millennial kingdom, And I will take you to two passages here that I think uh, clearly show us that this will be a 1,000-year a earthly millennial kingdom. First, turn with me to Daniel chapter 7. This is a great prophetic passage. It's a, prof- it's a prophecy that Daniel, of course, of the Old Testament, saw this, even prior to Christ's first coming. Daniel chapter 7, starting in verse 13. He writes, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven... There came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion will be an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away and his kingdom, one, that shall not be destroyed. So That's Daniel chapter 7 verses 13 and 14. Now, you can hold your place there if you'd like, switch back to it later, but let's switch over to Revelation chapter 20. Now this is the passage that most definitively tells this concept of Jesus' earthly 1,000 year reign. Revelation chapter 20, starting in verse 1. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus, and for the word of God, and for those who had not worshipped the beast or its image, and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. And then here's the key verse. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Pretty unequivocal. Jesus reigning For 1,000 years. A couple of things to, to mention about these two passages, both Daniel and this passage in Revelation. These passages, on their own, plainly establish the fact of Christ's earthly kingdom. There's nothing about these passages that would warrant them to be spiritualized for us to understand them. They're pretty straightforward. Daniel ties the kingdom of establishment, noticed, with the coming of the Son of Man. Who is the Son of Man in the Old Testament? Hello. <laughs> Who's the Son of Man in the Old Testament? Christ, Christ is yeah. Christ. Absolutely, the, the coming of the Son of Man with the clouds in heaven. It's referring to His second return, His second coming. Presented before the ancient one. Yes, that's right. But He's coming in the clouds, pre-mill three thousand years because then look, next look he receives the kingdom from the father the ancient of days and then lastly it says that it will be an earthly kingdom because why all peoples nations and languages will serve him mm-hmm. so it's earthy language but then so that you can you can try to spiritualize that and many have but I take that and I take that then again with what revelation clearly says in that verse uh, that we just read that he reigns for clearly on earth for a thousand years. And notice, the, in Revelation 20, how many times is thousand mentioned? Six. It is mentioned six times in that passage. I put the idea that there is a reason why God mentions something in multiple fashion in order to make sure that we get it. A thousand years. So that's that's the argumentation regarding... A earthly millennial realm from the scripture regarding Jesus' reign. And then the, the balance of the schema regarding the pre mill view is that the judgment of the nations would follow after that, after the thousand year reign is done, and then God or Jesus ushers in the new heavens and the new earth. So that's a composite of what the end times look like from a pre mill view. So that's the first foundation stone as to how I see uh, the pre mill view being supported by the testimony, by the plain testimony of Scripture, how you could stand on that position that it will be a literal thousand-year reign. But it's not just based on that. There are other two others that I would say are played into the the argument behind this. And the second foundation stone is God's covenant promises to Israel. They play a major factor into this understanding of Christ's earthly thousand-year reign. Let me read this passage from Deuteronomy 7. Of all the people on the earth, the Jews are God's chosen people. That's made clear in the Old Testament, and we see that in this passage. Deuteronomy 7, God says, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all the peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So what's being referred to is the original covenant that God made with Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, the Abrahamic covenant, and then by extension the Davidic covenant and the new covenant that God will never revoke. The Abrahamic covenant. We go back all the way to Genesis chapter 12 where God calls Abraham from out of the Ur of the Chaldees unto himself and look listen to what he says to Abraham. He says to him, I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great. I will bless those who bless you, and, who, and him who dishonors you, I will curse. In you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And then upon entering the land of Canaan, he says to him, to your offspring, I will give this land. And then six times in that passage, again, God says, I will, I will, I will. He's not relying on Abraham to fulfill anything. He's saying, I'm going to do this. That same promise is given to Abraham in chapter 50, when God enters into that unilateral covenant with Abraham, where he puts him to sleep, if you remember, after cutting the animals in half, creating a little gauntlet, that normally two kings would go through and make a covenant together, a covenant in blood that... that it basically, it basically said, if I fail to live up to my end of the covenant, may I be cut asunder like these animals. That's essentially what they were saying. But you know what? Abraham doesn't go through that gauntlet. God puts him to sleep. And God makes the promise to Abraham, the very same promises that he made to him in chapter 12. And he himself goes through that gauntlet, he commits to keeping that covenant. And we find that once more again in chapter 17, where he says to Abraham, And I will give to you and your offspring after you all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession. So that's God's promise to Abraham in that sense. But then God continues that same covenant to pass on to Isaac and Jacob. And then there's a reiteration of it later on when it comes to, to, the, to King David that God raises This is called the Davidic Covenant, we find this in 2 Samuel chapter 7, and listen to the language again, I'll just read highlights. I will make your name great. I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and will plant them. I will give you rest from your enemies. I will raise up your offspring after you. I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Your house and kingdom will be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. So with the Abrahamic covenant, he promised the land. And he promised that the world would be blessed through his loins. Of course, we know that's speaking of the Lord Jesus. But then also, it's continued on, where he promises through the Davidic covenant, that not only will you get the land, your seed is going to sit on the throne. In rulership. He will have an everlasting kingdom. So we have the Abrahamic covenant, the Davidic covenant, And then it's finally put together in what's called the New Covenant. The New Covenant we find in Jeremiah 31. Again, God speaking to the people of Israel. Listen to the words. And listen with the commonality of it. I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel. Unlike the one he says that you broke. The Mosaic Covenant is the one that they broke is what he's referring to. He says, I will put my law in them and I will write my law in their hearts. I will be their God, they shall be my people. I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. And then listen to this passage. This is in verse 37 of chapter 31 of Jeremiah. It's going to be an unbreakable covenant. He says, Thus says the Lord, If the heavens above can be measured, and the foundations of the earth below can be explored, then will I cast off all the offspring of Israel for all that they have done. Why does he say it that way? Because the heavens can't be explored and the depths can't be explored. Because that means God is going to do this. Nothing will negate His promise to Israel. He has promised Himself to it, He's committed Himself to it, He will fulfill His promises to them. The new covenant is not a reward for obedience, it's an abounding grace, mercy, and love despite their past apostasy and disobedience. God is ever faithful. Even to his whoring people, he continues to pursue them. And so, in light of these promises, a spiritualized view of God's work regarding the kingdom was on was foreign to the Old Testament believer. Even in the year first year, where our Lord comes in in one A.D., God's promised kingdom they thought was going to come literally. How do we know that? Well. Look at the testimony that we have from the New Testament of Jesus' ministry. How many times do we read about the crowd wanting to make Jesus their king and him having to avoid, to get away from them? They had a kingly mindset. They wanted an earthly kingdom. They expected an earthly kingdom. What happens when Jesus enters into Jerusalem at the triumphal entry? They go berserk. They think this is the coming of the kingdom. This is our king. They're waiting for him to take over the Romans at that point. They expected an earthly kingdom. The Pharisees always questioned Jesus. When is this kingdom coming? Is this the time of the kingdom coming? Notice too, and even Dustin sang it this morning, when the Lord teaches his disciples to pray, what does he say to them? He teaches them, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Why is, he, why is he telling them to pray for God's kingdom to come if, as the amillennial view would say, by his appearance right there, the kingdom was already ushered in? Mm-hmm. Just something to think about. Jesus is actually telling them to pray for the kingdom to come. But then this this actually this last point, is, is for me, it was very definitive. It goes back to Acts chapter 1. If you wouldn't mind, turn back there. That same passage we were in regarding his ascension. Look at verse 3, and then we're going to jump down to verses 6 and 7. Acts chapter 1. So again, Jesus is with the apostles. This is after his resurrection. It's the 40 days between his resurrection and his ascension. And it says in verse 3, He presented himself, this is Jesus, He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days, and notice, And speaking about the kingdom of God. Then jump down to verse 6. So when they had come together, they, the apostles, asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. Isn't that interesting? Jesus had been teaching them about the kingdom of God for 40 days. And here, just before his ascension, they ask him the question, Lord, is the kingdom going to happen right now? Wouldn't this have then been, been the perfect time for Jesus to say, said, Guys, haven't you been listening? Are you so dull? Do you not get it? It's not coming. There's no millennium. This would have been the time to say it. But he doesn't. He just says, it's not for you to know the time. He doesn't negate the fact that there's a kingdom coming. He doesn't squash that. He just says... You're not, you just don't know the time. Only God knows. God's character is such that he will keep his promises. And we know that from Hebrews 6, 13 through 20. You can look at that on your, own after, uh, on your own study. But just listen to this quick point. It says in that passage, For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself to show more convincingly to the heirs of promise the unchangeable character of his purpose. It says in that passage that God cannot lie. God cannot break his promise to his people Israel. So therefore, since these covenant promises to Israel haven't been fulfilled, we can rest assured that all the promises will be fulfilled. He will make good on his promise that he gave to Abraham all those years ago. Israel has to this day never been in the fullness of the land that God promised them. God will do that. He will give them all the land that He promised them, and they will be part of that kingdom that He promised them, that will be an eternal kingdom. There will be a thousand year earthly reign of Christ. He will do it. So, we have the plain testimony of Scripture, we have the covenant promises of God to Israel. And then the third foundation stone that I think holds all this together is the distinction between Israel and the church. The Old Testament refers to Israel as God's elect. The New Testament refers to Israel, or to the church, as God's elect. Now, because the Jews crucified Jesus and rejected him, because Jesus, for that rejection, in anticipation of it, pronounced judgment on Israel saying your house is left desolate remember he says that and thus the promise that the temple would be destroyed because Ephesians 2 tells us that Christ is the one who brings Jew and Gentile into one new man and because Colossians 3 says that there is therefore now no Greek or Jew but all are one in Christ this has caused some theologians to conclude that God is done with Israel. That Israel had their chance, they had their moment, they, forso- they forsook the blessings because they rejected Christ. Therefore, because they rejected Christ, the blessings that were promised to Israel are now transferred to the church. That is, in technical terms, what many call replacement theology. They essentially assert... That Israel is no more the church has replaced Israel now to do this and to make it work you have to do, you have to change definitions and you have to uh, spiritualize the promises um, Israel can't mean Israel anymore especially when you're reading the Old Testament it, it, it can't mean Israel anymore it has to mean it has to have a view of the church and since the Jews don't matter anymore then that means that there is no earthly kingdom they're going to receive there's no earthly promised kingdom to the Jewish people anymore, and since there's no earthly kingdom, then that means there's no literal millennium. Why would there be? And so that comes that, that brings people to this Amil position that there is no millennium. But the testimony of scripture is polar opposite to that. God is not done with Israel. Scripture teaches that ethnic Israel and the church are two distinct entities. And I don't think there's anything that more powerfully declares this than Romans chapter 11. So if you can go to the Romans 11 with me, we'll be in the home stretch here in just a minute. So starting in verse 1 of Romans 11. First, Paul establishes the fact that Israel has not been cast off by God. Very plain language. Paul writes, now remember, he's writing to Gentile believers. He says, I ask them, has God rejected his people, meaning his people Israel, by no means? For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. And then jumping down to verse 5, he says, at the present time there is a remnant chosen by grace. So clear teaching. God has not rejected Israel. But then next, Paul explains why is it that they why did they reject Christ? And why do they remain in unbelief? Look at verse 8. God gave them a spirit of stupor. Eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear, down to this very day. God's plan of redemption, He foreordained the apostasy, if you will, the rejection of Christ by the Jews. It is He that worked the spiritual blindness in the Jew. It's an un- incomprehensible thing to say, because oftentimes we want to rush to God's. A defense and try to get him off the hook about something that sounds so heinous, but God, in his providence, in his sovereignty, and in his, his unincomprehensible ways, has ordained spiritual blindness for Israel. Now, let's see why. Why is God doing this? Look at verse eleven. So I ask that they stumble in order that they might fall by no means rather. Through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make them jealous. Every one of us in this room who is not of Jewish descent is a recipient of the grace of the blindness of the Jews because it's because of their blindness that the door opened for salvation to come to the Gentile. It's an absolutely amazing part of the whole plan of redemptive history. God worked it so that their heinousness of their rejection. By that heinousness, an opportunity opened for us. Now, how would it be worked out? Verses 17 through 24 tell us that. I won't read it all, but let me give you a quick synopsis. Essentially, what he paints a picture here of Israel being an olive branch. Okay, you have an olive tree. He's, he's painting Israel as a branch on that tree. But by their unbelief, the branch is broken off. They no longer have a tie-in to the feeding of the tree so that they could stay alive and vibrant because of their unbelief. They've been broken. But as a result of that brokenness, the Gentiles, it says, were a wild olive shoot. They were separate. They were in a separate tree. That wild olive shoot was taken by God, and it says he grafted them in with the branch to the tree of life. And then it says... Uh, down in verse 23 and 24 regarding that after that grafting happens if the Jews believe they will be grafted back into the tree listen to the words and even they if they do not continue in their unbelief will be grafted in for God has the power to graft them in again for if you were cut from what by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? So he, the distinction between the church and Israel is clear here. He's dealing with two separate entities, ethnic Jews and the church. The church we have been grafted into this amazing work that God has done from the foundation of the world in calling a people out for himself. And then there will come a time when that will come to an end and the Jews will be grafted back into the church for ultimate salvation. We see this moving on in this passage. Look at verses 25 and 26. Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. Okay, a partial hardening. They've been hardened for a while. But then a moment's going to happen until the fullness of the Gentiles is complete. And then look at verses 28 through 31. As regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake, speaking of the Jews. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you at one time were disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. So the Jews are hardened in part until the fullness of the Gentiles come in. But once that happens, the eyes of the Jews are going to be opened and they will believe. So get it. The Jews became apostate for the purpose of Gentile salvation. The last day's church will become apostate. For the purpose of the salvation of Jacob, of God's people. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. His remnant, his chosen remnant that he has selected at the end of time, they will be saved. So all of this makes clear that the church and Israel are distinct. And that God deals with them with equal precision and commitment. God calls the church out one by one, and once their numbers complete, they will be translated like Enoch before the flood, so that God can fulfill his promise to ethnic Israel, which consists of what? A new heart, which God does. He will give them all the promised land that he, that he said he would give them. He will give them an earthly millennial kingdom. And most especially, he will give them the Messiah that they have been waiting for. Their earthly king is coming. He is our Messiah now, and we know when they see him, it says in the scriptures, it tells us that they they will look upon him whom they have pierced. They will recognize what they have done, and now our Messiah is here. So two incredible truths about this to to finish this aspect up. One, the great thing about it is that being the grafted-in people that we are as the church, The incredible blessing of God is that he includes us in all of the covenant blessings that he promised to Israel. That part is true regarding the amillennial view. We receive the blessings that was promised to Israel, except we receive it with them. We are included in that great party. And then the last thing is just as that one passage said, the gifts and calling of God are unilateral and irrevocable. That means they cannot be broken. They will come to pass. He will do it. And so it's for these reasons, the plain testimony of God's word, the covenant promises that God made to the people of Israel, and the distinction between the Jew and the church, that I believe the pre-mill view is the most accurate position regarding the end times position. Now, I say that, and so the question arises, okay, that's great information, Mark, and this has been a wonderful, you know, Exciting study for us to get our heads around. What does this mean to me practically? Well, God has given us instruction on how are we to view and use these issues of eschatology? How is this supposed to change our lives? Let me just give you four points in closing. There should be a response by all of us to the end times and the teaching they have to do. The first one is, and all of these begin with the letter W. To Just kind of help remember them. The first one is watch. Matthew 25, 13, from our Lord. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. He said that in the context of his second coming. Watch. His return is imminent. If there's one thing that clearly is done by the pre-millennial, and especially the pre-trib view is that it affirms the doctrine of the teaching of the scriptures that Jesus can come at absolutely any moment. There is nothing that needs to happen for that event to occur. He can come in a moment in the twinkling of an eye, as the scripture talks about. So it calls all of us to be constantly and diligently watchful. That means we're to be engaged with this life. We're not to check out. We're not to get lost in TikTok and only be thinking that that's our world. Right. Mm -hmm. We're to be engaged in knowing what's going on in this world, not to be obsessed and not to sit there, like I said, with the newspaper in one hand and the Bible in the other and trying to figure out the times that God has said we don't know. But it's to be astute enough to know the times that we're living in, to see the trends where things are going and to be actively knowing the signs of the times that we're in. And Jesus actually even chastened at his first coming. The Pharisees, right? He said, you can tell the weather, but you can't tell the signs of the times. Meaning that they had no idea that Jesus was coming. Because they weren't expecting him. And so we need to be diligent in that end. Don't be clueless. Watch. Secondly, work. For we are God's workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God has prepared in advance for us to do. Ephesians 2.10 we have work to do here. We are not to just sit back idly. This isn't just a ride, a roller coaster ride that we get to coast on and enjoy it. This is not, as others have done, uh, taken an its mentality and says, well, those this this worlds go in the pot and I... and, and